chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 6 today, which is on page 786 in the blue uh, pew Bible, if you do not have um, your own. So just before we get going, I just want to give you an update from... Uh, really, I guess a couple months ago now, when we, um, after a hurricane hit Texas, I think that was Hurricane Harvey, I'm getting them mixed up now, uh, we just kind of said, hey, we want to play a part in this and just uh, kind of gather any funds that you'd like to give that we can send down to local churches in that area. And then uh, in the ensuing weeks with then Florida and then with Puerto Rico, we kind of just changed that to just hurricane relief in general, that we wanted to just, uh, again, gather funds to go get into churches in those local areas. And so I just want to kind of give you an update on that, that this week um, we are going to distribute what has come to be uh, about $6,000 that you guys gave for that cause uh, three ways to Acts 29 Network, which is a church network in Texas and Florida, and then to Samaritan's Purse in Puerto Rico. which is the same organization that does Operation Christmas Child. So uh, really just want to say thank you for your generosity in that. I mean, really, we just, I think, one time in church, and then in a couple emails just said we're doing this, and like that, you guys just gave uh, $6,000 kind of over and above what you were giving um, already. And so just praise God for how he works through his saints. And so that will be going out on Tuesday. Uh, so if you do have any kind of last-minute desire that you had meant to and were not able to, on our Push Pay um, app, you can... Uh, go ahead and there's the hurricane relief pull down um, on that. Um, well, as we dig back into the book of Habakkuk, just thank you to Pastor Jeff for preaching uh, last week. And he really uh, just did a great job preaching the climax, really, of the book of Habakkuk. Um, if you were to kind of distill down uh, the entire book to one line, it's one that he opened the service with uh, this week, um, preached on last week. And then the phrase is, The righteous shall live by his faith. God's words to the prophet. And this is uh, clearly the phrase that the New Testament authors, Paul, the author of Hebrews, and others kind of extracted from this book and then applied to churches in their letters in the New Testament. Um, And then really just the timing of this phrase is, I think, providential in the fact that um, the topic of faith uh, being the, the, the really kind of cornerstone of the Christian life is really what we are celebrating in 500 years uh, since the Reformation, since that day that Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses to the wall. Uh, really, his, his conviction as he's reading Scripture is that salvation is by faith alone. And that is um, so uh, just central to what we do and what we believe here, and yet that was such a revolutionary um, concept 500 years ago that he and others were willing to give their lives for. And so uh, we just want to kind of celebrate that today, really coming out of the book of Habakkuk, that all roads flow from and lead back to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, In the midst of just complexity of life, of just highs and lows that we face, right, struggles and successes that we have in marriages, in singleness, at work, in, in our families, in our desires, and our passions really lead us all back to the need for faith. Like you just literally cannot overstate its centrality in the Bible and the Christian life. Faith. Faith that comes from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. That God has made a way for redemption by sending his son to take on the judgment of sinners that was due to mankind, including me, including you. And in his death and resurrection, the offer of new life in him was made available for those who would put their faith in him. 
Faith, meaning full trust and commitment. Not just verbal, yeah, I have faith, but a life that embodies faith. A commitment to follow Christ in all that we do. Like, that's why we're Christ-centered in our vision. That's why we make much of Him week after week, day after day, because He alone saves That is saving faith. But then you kind of talk about just the Christian life, right? This ongoing, continual, Christ-centered faith is what is required of us, especially in the times when we have questions like Habakkuk does. In those times where uh, there seems to be a gap in our understanding of of, of the character of God and, and then the work of God, right? I know God is this and he's revealed himself to be this, but I see this happening in the world and I see this happening in my own life and I feel like there's a gap here and I have some questions. Faith is what is needed in that space and and in this context, in this book, what we have been seeing is this prophet named Habakkuk. And if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, he, he, he simply, he wants to know why. God would do some certain things. Uh, most recently, he wants to know why God would use a wicked, evil nation called Babylon, the Chaldeans, to discipline God's own people. But it's important to note, he's not questioning the discipline, right? That's what Habakkuk called for, because Judah, God's chosen people, they were acting apart from God. They needed to be purged in order to be restored. They needed to be disciplined in order to be saved, like a surgeon who wounds a patient with a scalpel in order to save their life. So God must wound Judah in order to save and sustain his chosen people. So he's not questioning discipline, but he's questioning the means of God's discipline. It was this kind of puzzle piece that Habakkuk just didn't know what to do with. He couldn't put it together. Like, why Babylon? Why that nation? Here's what's interesting to me about this book is God's never going to specifically tell him why. You never get that in this book. Much like he never really tells Job why Job had to go through what he went through in the seasons of his suffering. Much like many of us will not always know why certain things happen, both in our lives and around the world. But he still responds. Right? Just to echo what Rachel just prayed. Like, praise God that we have a God who responds. And who reveals more of himself every time he does. And so um, what he will do and what we will look at this morning is that he's going to tell Habakkuk what he's going to do to this evil nation of Babylon. He's going to use them to discipline Judah, but but what is he going to do to Babylon in response to their wickedness? And so in this prophetic book, we see uh, the difference between discipline and wrath. Discipline and wrath, right? Two weeks ago, we saw God's promise of discipline against Judah in order to save them and sustain them. But this morning, we will see that this is a warning passage that we're about to dig into. A warning passage of God's wrath against the evil of Babylon. Like, who's glad they came to church today? All right, like, you braved the weather. And we're talking about warning and wrath this morning out of the book of Habakkuk. And so, um, before we just really start with the passage itself, just... I. I feel just led to want to share a quick word on on warning and wrath because I I think we hear those words and we always just see them as negative and kind of discouraging and these kind of downcast aspects of the Bible that leave us saying like, man, I don't want to hear about that. Like my life is hard enough. I'm dealing with all this stuff throughout the week. I did not come into church to hear this kind of negativity. I I want to lay before you the, the, the fact that for the church, 
And specifically for the Christian, um, hearing the word of God put out a warning and discussing the reality of God's wrath can actually serve as a source of comfort when seen rightly. So if we think about warning, whenever you see a warning passage in the Bible, right, it's not meant to be oppressive. It's not meant to rob us of joy or fulfillment. A warning is actually meant to protect us. A warning is meant to help sustain us, and it's a means of grace. Like, that's the purpose of a warning. I think we know this about any other part of life, and so I'll try and prove it with this illustration. Um, This past week, my family and I were down in North Carolina, all right, for a few days, and um, we, one morning, my father and my, uh, two of my three brothers and I uh, went golfing. All right, so we uh, were going golfing. It's my first time ever golfing in North Carolina, and so um, we get to the kind of clubhouse. The, the starter escorts us to the first hole because uh, people are just nicer down south to the point where it catches you off guard. And he's just sharing about all these things about the course and like to enjoy it. Here's things to look out for. And then like he's literally about to drive away and he goes, oh, one more thing. I wouldn't really go looking for your ball in the woods. We have a lot of copperheads around here. And I'm standing at the first tee like... You were almost gonna forget. You were almost gonna forget to tell us that, right? And 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 then secondly, how do you know I hit my ball in the woods? All right, like where you? This guy was scoping me out on the uh, on the practice range. All right, it didn't look good. They were rented clubs. All right, um, but here here's the thing. You get to a couple holes, and you, we came across this sign. I took a picture of it, and I sent it back to Rochelle in case I didn't make it back. She would know why. All right, you might not be able to read it. Let me read it. And this is only on a couple holes. I guess they're especially prominent. It says, snakes and alligators. Snakes and alligators may be found in this area and will defend themselves if cornered or disturbed. They are important members of our community. So, so here's the thing, like, that is a warning sign, right? And, 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 and what happened is, like, that will impact the way I'm going to act on that hole, right? Like, I am thinking nonstop about snakes and alligators, and I'm being watchful, and I'm being careful where I go and where I shouldn't go. But here's the question, is that sign meant to restrict my freedom? Is it meant to rob me of joy of walking in the woods looking for golf balls, and swimming in the pond uh, that I'm trying to hit a ball over and probably didn't? Um, or, or is that sign a means of grace? Is that sign meant to protect me and save my life? Like, it's up to me how I want to respond, but that, that warning is what it is. And in this passage, and I think any time you come across a warning in the Bible, particularly this warning, it, it is sent out to warn us that evil will always prove to be self-destructive. It's a house of cards that in due time will always collapse and lose in the end. And no matter how something may seem in the moment, evil always has one end, and it will betray itself in destruction. It's a warning that's meant to put Judah on alert a warning that's meant to put us on alert and impact the way we live for the purpose of sustaining and protecting us. So that's warning. Um, now a word about wrath, right? That word that just makes you all form and fuzzy inside, especially when you hear it in church. But he, he, here's the point. Um, wrath is only possible in light of true love. 
So a couple weeks ago, I used the uh, example of disciplining Caden. If I saw him coloring on the wall, right, the most loving thing I would do, I could do is, uh, is exert discipline on him. That would be actually unloving to just let it go and not do anything. It would set him up for failure. Well, let me use a similar illustration like this. Um, let's say I walk into a room, and I find that somebody is beating on Caden just letting loose on him. Like, listen, in that moment, I'm going to try and kill you, right? Like, like I'm, not, I'm not being a tough guy by saying that. I'm not like, oh, I'm macho, I'm going to try and kill you. Like, to be honest, I've never been in a fight in my life. It probably won't go well for me, all right? But I am going to kill you or die trying, all right? And, okay, maybe that's a little bit aggressive, all right? Like, maybe the elders got to talk to me about that, but, but here's the point, all right? If I were to walk in and somebody doing that to Caden and just go, oh, whoa, sorry about that, like, didn't mean to disturb you, I'll, I'll come back later, I'll come back later, like, that, that wouldn't reveal I'm a loving person, because I'm not exerting wrath. But on the contrary, a lack of wrath in that moment would expose the fact that I never loved Caden at all. A passionate, deep love for someone or something is what makes wrath a possibility, and so it should be a red flag uh, when we hear or attempted to think that God is all love and no wrath. It just doesn't make sense. It's only in light of true love that you can have a God that exerts wrath. And so um, with that said, a couple of those just building blocks in place. Um, let's get into this passage. And, and just it breaks itself down pretty easily in that God is going to deliver five woes to Babylon right? Five woes, five pronouncements of uh, judgment, and then he's going to give two promises to Judah. So that's how we're going to walk through this, looking first at the woes and then finishing with the promises. So we're in Habakkuk chapter 2, start with verses 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Five pronouncements of judgment. The first, that Babylon will be plundered by those it has plundered. That Babylon will be plundered by those it has plundered. And so God is saying, you have made a living and even a sport out of overcoming weaker nations. Of going in, just ransacking their land, enslaving them, carrying them into exiles. And listen, Babylon, the tables will turn. Your success will now be the spark of your downfall. Your greed will be the thing that gets you in the end. Because, listen, this is how ancient Babylon rolled back in its time of expanding its empire. Um, they would, just because they could, just because they were strong enough and they were brutal enough, they would just go from city to city and just gut the nation of its riches and its wealth. And what they did is that they, they had a very strategic way they would overtake cities, is that they would carry only the skilled upper-class people into exile back to Babylon, and they would leave in the land only the poorest and least well-off in the city that they just conquered because they are of no use of them. 
gut them of their wealth, gut them of their most skilled laborers, and leave everything else there. And so God is giving a glimpse. Again, this is all prophetic, right? This is all about 20 years before Babylon would come take out Jerusalem. Uh, but in the next about 20 years or so, we read this in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 24, verse 14. It says, He, he being King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So this was this nation's strategy. Go from region to region, city to city, plunder, rob, pull out the most skilled, and just gut a nation of all of its uh, really just most well-off people. But here's what would happen. Their greed and their evil proved to be short-sighted. Because in the end, when a nation greater than Babylon, and there's always a nation greater than you that's coming, it's this little budding empire called Persia. When they would come and they would challenge Babylon, their nation, their capital is now full of skilled men and skilled women who have zero allegiance to you. Zero allegiance to Babylon. And in their downfall, now these men who were plundered will turn and plunder Babylon. Because what happens when you gather a remnant from this city and a remnant from that city and this city and that city just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, um, what happens is that over time, you get a whole lot of people in your city who don't like you. And so Babylon's greed for power and more and bigger and better ended up being the very means of self-destruction to the empire. And so the warning to all who will hear it is that we ought to be rest assured that evil and sin never stops. You can't make a compromise with it. It always wants more. It is never satisfied and just goes deeper and it goes deeper and it's relentless. And the temporary relief, the temporary happiness and success that evil provides will always lose in the end. It is like drinking ocean water when you're dying of thirst. It might bring temporary relief, but ultimately, it will just make you more thirsty than you were to begin with. So flee from evil. Don't allow the temporary relief it provides. Fool us into thinking that we will get away with it in due time. All evil gets exposed. And the very thing evil builds will be the same means that tears it down. It cannot stand. Let's keep going. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Second woe. Babylon's security will be unsecured. Babylon's security will be unsecured. Um, so this is what Babylon would do, is that they try to set things up so that they would be free from any kind of rebellion, free from any kind of threat. And so they would use their evil-based methods of obtaining wealth, of obtaining skilled workers to build a huge fortress, 
Okay, so history tells us that Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, built a wall around its city that was unprecedented in the ancient world. It was a so thought impenetrable wall with 100 bronze gates. And all it did was provide a false sense of security. It provided them a sense that, man, we figured this out. We are the most powerful nation. We are the most brutal nation. We are now the most protected nation. We will never be overtaken. They were in control. And yet the smokescreen of control that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the false sense of assurance that they had it all under control, which helped them sleep at night, became undone. Because they will find that no matter how much you work and how much you toil and how good you are at what you do, if you put your faith in man-made security, it will fall flat before a God who does what he wills, when he wills, regardless of what you have in place. And God pronounces to Babylon, he says, you've forfeited your life. You've gained the world, but you just lost your soul, and in the end, you're going to lose both. Proverbs 1, 18 and 19 says, But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessions. Evil is self-destructive. It always loses in the end. That is the theme rolling through this whole passage of wrath and judgment. And the thin veil of control of those who turn on the Lord and carry out their own evil passions will one day be exposed. The reality of greed is always that it chokes itself out. It falls flat, and those who fall to it are left helpless, and it will shift downward before they even know what hits them. Let's keep reading verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? As we keep going, woe number three. Civilization replaced by devastation. Civilization replaced by devastation. Um, listen, Babylon succeeded in building a masterful city, one that like no other city had ever done in the history of the world. That's a big deal. They did something great. But in the end, this proves to be the classic evidence that the ends don't justify the means. The ends do not justify the means. And so what do I mean by that? Well, um, Babylon became the most powerful, wealthy, and impressive empire in the world. But it was built on the back of slave labor. It was built on the back of exiles. And it was built through the funding of stolen wealth. It was, as verse 12 said, uh, by God himself, a city founded on iniquity, a city founded by evil, and therefore it's not from the Lord, and it's not for the Lord, and it's not going to end well for them. The ends do not justify the means. And listen, like just innately, uh, we know this to be true, that what you have is not divorced from how you got it. It's not impressive to have something good if it took an evil method to get it. 
Um, I mean, literally countless examples I could use to just illustrate that, but let's just say, um, let's just say you move to a new area, and you get to know your next-door neighbor who is clearly wealthy. Uh, you find out he works in finance. Everything he owns is top-notch. His family is well taken care of. They have the best of the best. He seems to really love for them, care for them, spoil them. And then not only that, but as you live in town, you start to hear from other people that this neighbor of yours is also very generous. They give to a lot of charity. Just money flowing from who knows where. Um, and they donate money that, that builds the culture, that helps people out, et cetera, et cetera. And so after a few months, you're like, dude, my neighbor is legit. He's just, he's like, he's the guy. Well, let's say you get home one night and you turn on the news. And you see your neighbor splashed all over the TV because he's been arrested. And he's been arrested for running a Ponzi scheme. And so you find out that he has made all his money by defrauding investors of tens of millions of dollars and just making himself rich in the process. Like, what do you do about that? Like, at the end of the day, all the things you knew about him are still, like, very impressive, objectively. He still takes care of his family well. He still has very wealthy things. He still is very generous. So does it matter that you learned this? Does it matter that you found out that he made all his millions by defrauding other people? Of course it does. Because we innately know that the ends do not justify the means. It matters how you get what you got. And Babylon's civilization, as impressive as it was, would one day just be a place of destruction and devastation where only sparse ruins would stand the test of time because they built it all on the back of evil. Let's keep going. We're going to skip verse 14 for now because we're going to end with that. Let's go verses 15 to 18. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. God's getting aggressive. And he is picking up steam. And with this woe number four, we find that Babylon's glory would be turned to shame. The evil that defined this empire was not just its power and its strength to overwhelm its enemies for economic purposes to build bigger and better. They also sought to ridicule and take great joy out of shaming their exiles by dehumanizing them. And so they would force them to drink to the point where they would get drunk and make a fool of themselves in graphic ways, in grotesque ways, and just humiliate those they have conquered. It is the never-ending road of evil. It's never enough, always wanting more, always wanting to go deeper. And so, again, in a trend we have seen over and over again in this passage, God proclaims that they will fall victim to the very acts they perpetrated against others. 
says, Babylon, you have a false sense of glory now. But it is hollow, and it is temporary, and your time's coming. Your end is near, and you will be the one you will be the one drinking the cup of wrath, and it's going to expose you and your shame just as you sought to expose others. And we get this image of a cup, a cup that's kind of used throughout Scripture that is um, a symbol of divine retribution. It's this cup that Jesus would fall to the ground in the garden the night he was arrested, sweating blood, asking the Father to let this cup pass from him. This cup that he would concede he must take, not by his will, but the will of the Father be done. And Jesus would willingly take this cup in place of those who would place their faith in him and by him be saved from eternal wrath and given in its place eternal life. But for Babylon, they would not turn to the Lord. And so they cannot pass over it. Instead, they will drink from it to their shame, and the violence will overwhelm them to the point where no one or nothing could help them, including and especially not the idols that they have formed themselves. Here's the thing about idols. Here's the thing about gods that we worship. The reality of a god is shown to be real or hollow in times of distress. It's in times of panic, in times where you need it, that these uh, gods uh, will that Babylon has relied upon will be found to be worthless because they are speechless. And which leads us to the final woe. Let's read verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. Fifth woe to Babylon all idols will be exposed in the light. Woe to him who expects a lifeless thing to provide a purpose in life, who expects a dormant created object that they have created to then rise and teach and breathe life back into them. He says, behold, these idols you have will be exposed for what they are when you're in distress. They are created things that will always overpromise and always underdeliver. Under it's what idols did then. It is what idols and false gods do now. They offer happiness and they offer fulfillment, but they cannot deliver either. Five woes to Babylon. Five declarations of wrongdoing, and along with it, five pronouncements of judgment of their evil. And from this passage, along with the rest of Scripture, we learn that every evil that has ever been committed, okay? Every action, every thought, every motivation, every intention done out in the world, done in our own hearts, can be distilled down to one common denominator. And that is a boast in self-glory over God's glory. Mankind is prone to invoke false gods, to spotlight ourselves, because we've created them. In the Old Testament, it was carved images. 
In the New Testament, it was the idol of self-righteousness and external performance amongst the Pharisees. In our day, it is the idols of beauty and money and power and self-sufficiency. And across history, these idols might look different on the surface, but at the heart, they all remain unchanged. Evil is, by its nature, choosing self-glory over God's glory. And so here's the point of this passage. I think here's the point of this sermon, that evil is, by its nature, self-destructive. Do you see why? Because when you choose yourself over God, you say, I will deliver myself. I don't need anything outside of myself to bring fulfillment. My desires will lead the way. My experiences will lead me. My determination will deliver. And so God's wrath in the scripture, is not giving you something you don't want. Wrath is giving yourself to your own desires. That's what Romans 1 says, that we will all, at the end of the day, get our heart's desire. We will follow and do and get what we love most. And for those who deny God's glory in place of themselves, they will get what they want. This was true for the wicked nation of Babylon in the Old Testament. This was true of the overly religious Pharisees of the New Testament. This is true for anyone today who's going to trust themselves over the person and work of Jesus Christ. You will get what you want. You will get what you love most. But Scripture is clear that every single time, in due time, choosing self will collapse onto itself. It will be self-destructive, as evil always proves to be. That's what the five woes in Habakkuk tell us. So let's finish on a high note, because this passage alongside these woes also has these two jump-off-the-page promises that we need to cling to this morning. So let's read the first promise back in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. First promise, God's glory will spread. God's glory will spread and it will remain. And I've talked about this before, that the glory of God is the blazing center of the Bible. It is the top of the mountain when it comes to purpose, to goals, to passions, to the end of all of creation. It is the blazing center of our vision statement because we believe it's the blazing center of the Bible. God is infinitely passionate for the glory of his name. And that it be known. And that it be treasured above all things. And so that's why this promise cannot be overstated. And it cannot stand in further contrast to the wicked empire of Babylon. You notice God doesn't talk about Judah at all here. He doesn't say, hey, they're wicked, but you guys are awesome. He says, they're wicked, but I'm awesome. My glory is that what will spread over the world. And so um, Babylon's army, they seem strong right now. Babylon's army, they seem vast and unstoppable, and they're just conquering nation after nation, city after city. But one day, the only promise that will remain is that there will be one thing covering this whole world, and it's not going to be Babylon. There's going to be one thing covering this whole world, and it won't be evil. Rather, one day, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. 
It is the promise of all promises. One that Habakkuk's full trust and faith can rest in, and one that he can write down so it will be a declaration for all of God's people, both presently and in the future, that God does not fail. He does not come up short. And when Jesus Christ came and began his ministry, what did he proclaim? What's the first thing Jesus said in Mark 1? He said, first, the kingdom of God is at hand. By his death and resurrection, he stripped Satan of his power, and in the moment Satan was defeated, God's glory was put on display. And for those who put their faith in him, they too will inherit the kingdom of God. They too will be witnesses on that day when Christ returns, and in its finality, God's glory will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. And so this isn't about perfection on our part. This isn't about us having to do enough to impress God. It is about faith in a man who did perfection on his part, who accomplished it, who stood in our place on the cross so that we may stand in his place as justified before the Father of all eternity. It's called the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness by faith alone. And so maybe, as I'm just writing this and thinking about this, maybe you're um, a believer who is, is hyper-aware of your own sin. And you're hearing these talks about evil and wrath, and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, like this is me, and you're just beating yourself up for failing to play the part, for struggling in your walk. Let this actually be an encouragement for you this morning. To not let the magnitude of your sin overshadow, to, overshadow the magnitude of God's grace and mercy. And his promises to redeem and restore those who have faith. Remember, he's saying this right on the back of him telling Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. And the whole essence of faith is trusting fully in what he has done. Fixing our eyes on that, not on what we do to measure up. Let us all find comfort at the foot of the cross and rest in that. Second promise, the end of the passage. These are the final words God will say in this book. Verse number 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A final word from the Lord, a promise that comes from a place of complete and utter contrast to these false, lifeless idols in Babylon. This verse carries some weight. The idols, they are hollow. There is no breath in them. They are speechless. They are dead. They always have been dead. They always will be dead. But God is in his temple, and he is alive. And he has always been alive, and he always will be. Let he or she have ears hear the word of the Lord this morning. And then in a reverent, sobering, yet joyous statement is made to round out his words in the whole book when he says, let all the earth keep silence before him. Silence can be deafening, and it carries some weight. 
And here's the difference. When man shapes their idols and worships fake gods, we do all the talking because they're dead. We set the terms. We mold them how we want them, and it's easy to justify to ourselves, and we don't need to listen to them, but we can do all the speaking. But with the living God, we will be the ones who are silent in his presence. We will be so overwhelmed by his presence, by his work, by his holiness, that there will be nothing to say, nothing to do, except to come bow down in silent worship of the king. This is a warning passage. So let me finish by saying, warning passages can do one of two things, depending on where you are in relation to faith in Jesus Christ. A warning passage can convict those who need to be convicted. Convicted in their need for a Savior after seeking self-destruction, self-righteousness, which leads to destruction on their own sin. And it would put you on a path towards searching for a Savior, a path that, Lord, would, Lord willing, will lead you to Jesus Christ. And second, for those in here who are in Christ, a warning passage like this is a ringing reminder of the nature of evil and that equips us to flee from where its presence remains in our lives and also provides assurance that regardless of what we see in this world, Regardless of how it appears, evil may be winning. Evil seems like it has the edge. Evil seems like he has God on the ropes. To cling to the promise that God's glory alone will remain. That the living God alone will prevail. And because of his great love for us in Christ, we will be delivered from his wrath. Praise God for warning passages in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will soften our hearts to what is a hard word from your scripture this morning. I pray that we would come bow down before you, Lord, in silent, reverent worship of you. Remind us of what is of first importance. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the nature of evil and equip us this week to flee from it, Father. We all have something we need to flee from. Give us that power to do so this week and beyond, Father. I pray for those who do not, net, not yet know you, Lord, that you would bring conviction in a place that leads to joy everlasting. That in you there is life and life to the full. Let that be true of someone in here today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.